0: Hello, and welcome to The Voice of Value, an API podcast for property professionals, where we explore insights, issues and opportunities with a range of leaders across our ecosystem. I'm Amelia Hodge, CEO of the Australian Property Institute. This week, we're speaking to John Verpoletti, one of the longest serving property practitioners in Central and Eastern Europe. John is a fellow of the API and has spent more than 35 years in senior real estate positions with some of the biggest firms in real estate. Welcome John, and thanks for joining us from Budapest, it's a pleasure to have you with us today.
1: It's great to be here and uh, to participate uh, in in Australian life again so uh, informally.
0: Yeah, fantastic, we're really pleased to have you and really looking forward to the journey of our conversation today. Uh, John, you've held a range of leadership roles at Colliers, AXA Real Estate Investment Management, DTZ, obviously now Cushies, um, and other property uh, real estate firms across the Central and Eastern Europe region, but you started your career in Melbourne. Um, where did you grow up and how did that shape who you became?
1: Well, I grew up in the uh, western suburbs of Melbourne as the son of, uh, of migrants, um, Fell into, absolutely fell into valuations as a career. Um, but coming from a migrant family, I guess the importance of ed- education was always there. And uh, uh, that's sort of helped me on my uh, professional career or, or on the journey there. Um, but really, it was totally accidental that I got into property and I've loved it ever since
0: really. And so was property part of your um, your growing up or was it something that, as you just said, you fell into? It's no. amazing how many people I speak to that they say they just fell into a valuation career.
1: Yeah, it's. Um, I didn't think I was going to get through high school and uh, I had a and I was going to throw uh, Form 6, as it was was called then. I was going to throw that in. And my father said, no, 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 don't do that. Uh, you know, the typical migrant dad uh, focused on education. Mm-hmm. He said, look, if you finish this year, mate, uh, I'll send you off to Europe. And I was sent off to Europe at the end of the year, not believing I got through uh, HSC. And I came. <laughs> and and it, they rang me while I was in Europe and said, uh, you, you got in. I said, I got in. And he said, yeah, you got into PE at Monash. Well, Mm -hmm. from a a guy in Sunshine in the western suburbs of Melbourne, he may as well well have said, uh, you know, your daily commute's going to be to Sydney and back. Um, (laughs) So I ended up joining the public service very quickly, uh, local government department, when I got back. And Mm -hmm. instead, and I was rotated amongst three departments, one of which was the Valuer General's office. And at that stage, I was going into the office and not understanding what a valuer was at all and I noticed the guys half the guys weren't in their offices and I said to uh, said to some of my colleagues what's going on he said well they're out on the road and that really appealed to me uh, you know half 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 in the office half out of the office mm. and then I asked some of the guys uh, later on I said well how do you become a valuer and what is a valuer and they told me and they said uh uh, it's a two-year course at RMIT. Well, that was exactly my sort of tertiary qualification. Two years, half half of yeah. what everybody else was doing, um, which didn't come to last, of course, because the, the first day we started, Maury Squirrel, the then head of the department, said the course has changed. But uh, so that, that was absolutely mm-hmm. no exposure to business, uh, and absolutely no exposure to real estate, and absolutely no exposure to uh, valuation specifically.
0: That's fantastic. And um, I had the great pleasure of meeting with Maury Squirrel recently. He came into our office in Melbourne. Um, he's helping our learning and development team out with some fantastic uh, work that he's done. So it, he uh, was explaining to me the days of the Valuer General's Office way back when it was was, was a really lovely coffee.
1: Yeah, well, Maury uh, he's, he's one of the people I hold in the highest regard and he was instrumental, I think, uh, certainly in the 70s and 80s. In accelerating the quality of uh, property education Australia, because yeah. he went over to America for quite some time, then imported that knowledge back here, uh, which which he deployed both in the undergraduate course that mm. I did, also in the postgraduate course I did, uh, where Morrie was also instrumental. Got a lot of time for for what Morrie's done for property education Australia. It's been very mm. important to me. Well, he's
0: been working very closely with our team and um, very generously and uh is providing us with a whole um almost a book of what he's written and what his knowledge is over the years so watch this space
1: oh, um, no disrespect to him i would have thought he'd be retired
0: by now <laughs> he is retired which is why it's so generous um
1: yeah, fantastic. he is
0: retired um yeah. but he reached out and said i've written this um book i don't want to um, any money or I just want to help the profession and lead the profession um, into the future. And uh, he's been working with um, with our team. So uh, there's those beautiful gems that that come in the life of a CEO every now and then that uh, you, you grab with both hands. Yep. Um, so what prompted you to work in Central and Eastern Europe?
1: Um, a couple of things. Late 80s uh, Australian property market, um, Well, collapsed, (laughs) is the short way of saying it. In addition to which, I was working for uh, Elders Finance, which Mm -hmm. was a division of Elders IXL and John Elliott's efforts to privatise the company, and I, along with many others, became a casualty as Elders Finance um, also imploded, despite the property division being quite successful, uh, or one of the most successful units within it. And I have Hungarian heritage. Uh, and in the Melbourne Age, they uh, they advertised for uh, uh, lawyers and accountants, and I wrote back uh, to Price Waterhouse in Hungary and said, "Look, I'm neither neither of the above, but this is what I am." And then I secured a two year contract and came out.
0: Wow, what a shift!
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I came out in my uh, Australian winter coat and my leather. Uh, leather sole shoes, neither of which are good in uh, Central European <laughs> winter, I can tell you. <laughs>
0: <No>. <laughs> it's a bit like me. I'm a Queenslander that's moved to Melbourne. So right. <laughs> I, I didn't own a puffer jacket until <laughs> at all, <laughs> until I moved to Melbourne. But I'm loving it. I, one of the best cities in Australia, I think. Absolutely. Um, and so how do you think Australia's property industry differs to Hungary and the wider Central Europe region?
1: Yeah, um, I've worked throughout the Central and Eastern Europe region, inclusive of Russia, up until a few years ago, uh, obviously. Um, look, you, the thing about Central and Eastern Europe is that you've got to remember the property market is just over a generation old, which is very hard for, for people to understand that really it's only since 1991. I mean, when I arrived here, there were no sales because they were command economy, so there, there were no sales transactions that you could mm. Uh, used there were no property professionals and certainly no um, no valuers there were no court precedents so you couldn't you know there wasn't a Spencer case that you could turn to for guidance so all of those things were were missing from the market um, so it's it's you know in the last 30 years the property market has obviously developed and it's developed very quickly uh, but it, it starts at a base 30 years ago and very much unlike Australia, which has a rich history of uh, professional property, property people, development, uh, etc. Et so, very, very different environments and challenging environments, obviously here as you mm. get used to.
0: But also great opportunity for people who have the skills and expertise that property professionals have, I would think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was uh, fantastic. In fact, I got another guy from Melbourne actually to come out in the early 90s while we were working for Price Waterhouse. Um, But most people have tended to come and and go back. Most of them have been uh, Brits who come Mm. and then see that as as, uh, developing their careers uh, somewhat, you know, one step uh, on the ladder. So come and spend maybe two or three years in a different uh, and perhaps challenging environment. And for a host of reasons, I've I've stayed on um, and enjoyed it, certainly professionally, Mm. so, um, Mm. yeah.
0: What, what lessons do you think Australian property professionals can learn from that from the region?
1: Again, going back, it, I'm not sure it, it, it so much would run that way from, uh, you know, from Central and Eastern Europe uh, to Australia. I think it, it'd run more the other way, and I'm very impressed with mm. property education, as I've mentioned earlier on. In Australia, I think uh, we followed the Americans very quickly. The Brits didn't. Um, you know, in the early 90s when I was waltzing around as a young little valuer here uh, talking to British counterparts and talking discounted cash flows, no one knew what I was talking about. But <laughs> we'd already done that in Australia in the in the 80s and, and late 70s. We, we'd already adapted and, and the Brits were still talking about Parry's tables, which mm. I no longer knew how to use um, because, you know, we'd become digital or computerised and uh and understood discounted cash flows um, and and here you know some of the professions are missing i mean town planning as a profession is missing town planning mm-hmm. is carried out by the chief architect of a municipality well you know i, I believe it deserves a, a, a separate uh, discipline um and i think uh one of the things australia should not do is uh, what's happened in, in large parts of Europe, and not only Central and Eastern Europe now, is and soften property education mm. uh, valuation in particular. I think has been softened throughout this region. You, you can now qualify as a valuer without actually having done uh, a, a valuation being a substantial part of your degree. And I don't think that's right. I, I think mm. it, you know, it, for for me, learning vals one, vals two, vals 3, 3A, VALS 3B, that was important uh, in, in helping me uh, be a better valuer at the time, I think. Mm, mm.
0: And I think, um, you know, more and more, I, I presented at an a, a International Valuation Standards Council conference in 2019 in Frankfurt. And, you know, there were um, lots of um, valuing professional organisations like us. From around the world and the consistent feedback was the quality of Australian valuers and Australian valuation education. Um, so, you know, it, it's really, and I also think if I look at, you know, the use of technology and data and um, AI and all of those things coming at us at pace, it impresses me how my, many Australians and, and in the valuation profession are quick to take that up, are quick to want to know more information and if I speak to you know, UK counterparts, it's a very different story. So it's interesting that you've just, you know, almost confirmed my um, well, insights.
1: It, it, it's possibly even worse than that because in some jurisdictions in this region, and certainly uh, across Western Europe as well, your route to becoming licensed uh, can involve from as little as a four-week part-time course, mm. uh, and I'm serious when I say that. And But it's worse because it allows you to become a valuer of real estate uh, businesses and plant machinery. Well, I mean, (laughs) you ain't going to get that in in four weeks. Uh, No. Some some people, and and they can become registered in in their local um, associations, Uh, and and that worries me. It it really Mm. does worry me professionally. And, you know, uh, the Australian standards that I was used to and I I know continue to exist, uh, I hold up so high. Um, mm. And I'm not i not saying that because I've got an Australian person I'm speaking to now. I, I really do value the education mm. system.
0: Well, I guess it's been proven. You know, our regulatory system around our financial institutions was, you know, the, the most solid during the GFC. And yeah. the, and you know, requiring evaluation under the APRA prudential regulations, um, I think is a key is a key to that. So, you know, I think we're an exemplary in relation to the whole ecosystem. So we have a futures project underway at the moment where we've, we're looking at what is the future of the valuation profession, how might we adapt to ensure its sustainability going forward so that, um, you know, machine learning and AI does not take over um, that role. Um, what questions we're asking around how can we use technology to undertake the lower value work and allow the professional to apply their skills and specialist expertise to the higher value work. So um, that is a project that is ongoing and I think that will um, transform the profession at least in, at least here um, to, to try and catch up with some of the other things that are coming at pace to us. Um, in that regard how's the property industry for all our sort of more you know newer to the profession people that will be listening to this how's the property industry changed during your career
1: oh it's it's been phenomenal <laughs> it's 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 unbelievable unbelievable the extent of change and a lot of it has been just very recent of course uh, some of the things you were talking to before uh, dig, digital uh, life that we're mm. now living but even even within property sectors i mean Um, Institutional investors never looked at residential previously, but in Europe, uh, you know, residential for rent is now the rage. Um, Student accommodation is now the rage. Well, that wasn't the case years ago. And then you've got uh, logistics now emerging, you know, as as a major sector. Go back 10 years and uh, and pre-everything that's happening these days, that wasn't the case, Uh, you know, repurposing of buildings. I don't think we've seen uh, what's happening in the office sector play out yet. Um, But that's also going through significant change. Uh, Talk of repurposing buildings. Um, You know, you used to have a a situation where a Microsoft, for instance, would lease a building for for 10 years um, and would lease 10,000 square metres. I've got to believe that that formula is now very vulnerable and and things are Mm -hmm. going to be changing. That that affects the whole institutional investment market. I'm not sure that's played out fully yet. And in recent years, obviously, as well, the the emergence and dominance, in fact, of ESG uh, certainly throughout Europe now um, has been very, very pronounced. Mm -hmm. You are either you're in the ESG game or you're not. uh, You are nothing. Uh, You will not get tenants. You will not. If you're an institutional investor, you will not get money. Uh, So there's, there's been a very, very serious uh, change within the industry and that's going to have physical ramifications and, and cost ramifications in the years to come as well. And the, the one thing that hasn't changed is uh, people's failure to recognise property cycles. Um, it, it, <laughs> mm-hmm. I can't for the life of me understand why we can't uh, realise that things uh, don't go on forever, but uh, we, we continue to fail to pick up that uh, things are turning.
0: Well, we have a whole generation who have never seen a turn.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Um, So that's interesting, the ESG. I mean, we're doing a lot of work around standards around ESG at the moment, particularly given the financial reporting requirements of, you know, clients of our members and also looking at other opportunities. You know, the federal government and CSIRO here is looking um, at the residential sector around energy efficiency data collection and, you know, how do we add another, I guess, skill set. our members and take up that opportunity to provide that service um we're looking at that there hasn't really been i think you know i absolutely agree with you in relation to the property sector the um the real estate investment trust sector and the big funds i don't think the office market has played out either but i have seen um small amounts of research around attractiveness to tenants, around um, longer-term leases being negotiated for those properties that have undertaken that work, um, improving their ESG sort of, I guess. Yeah, credentials. So um, I think it will be interesting to see how that plays out. I think with the pace of data and technology and digital twins and all all those things that are going on, you know we we don't have that much time to play catch up from a standards perspective in in my yep. view so yep. that's a real focus of our of the API this year um all right so um just going to you, you know John Verpaletti personal um we often talk to our members around how what they what they undertake outside of work that keeps that balance that mental you know health that physical health. Um, we all have work, but you know we're, we're really um, tapping into particularly our male members um, who don't really talk about these sorts of things. So just really keen to understand outside of work, you know, what are some of the things that you do to maintain your physical and mental health?
1: Yeah, I'm. Um I'm semi-retired now, so uh, one of the one of the things I focus on is keeping the mind active, which is not always easy. I, I read a great deal of, uh, <laughs> uh, and this may sound uh, comical, but I read a great deal of crime fiction, and and I'm a reviewer uh, of crime fiction for a UK site as well. Um, I enjoy that. That's something that keeps me uh, grounded. I, I also religiously uh, maintain a 12,000 steps a day regime. Oh wow! Uh, which is which is, uh, and I've only ever missed two days per year in the last five years, I, I think. That's because of snow. Uh, but
0: I, I. I was about to say, I don't think Budapest
1: in winter. Yeah, it's it, it can be quite a challenge uh, when it's snowing outside. But the good thing is, if it's snowing perhaps heavily in the morning, by the afternoon it'll it'll be okay to do your walk, or, or vice versa. Yes. So yes. I've always managed to do that. Um, I'm, I'm doing quite a bit of training as well. Uh, I like I like doing that. I like engaging with uh, uh, with, stu- uh, with students. I do um, quite a lot of examinations across Europe, in fact, for the RICS uh, as well, just to to keep the mind going. And that's been you know not only in this region, but also eastward through to Turkey and westward through to the UK. Um, so I enjoy keeping my hand in. Uh, and it, it's important for me to remain mentally active and, you know, with my ageing legs, try and do as much walking as I can as well.
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, I also love crime fiction. Um, I'm actually reading a book at the moment, interestingly enough, uh, written by a Brisbane lawyer and it's called How to Kill a Client. <laughs> it's
1: yeah, <right>.
0: highly <laughs> enter- highly entertaining. <laughs>
1: I I'm writing that down as we speak because it's it's one that I must have missed somehow but
0: uh it's just one of those um you know you can probably eat it up in one session but but it's it's really enjoyable having practiced as a lawyer property and construction lawyer many years ago um all the little characters that she's developed in there Yeah. and uh it's uh it's yeah it's quite entertaining but I do love a good crime novel um but if you had to write a book tomorrow what do you think you might write about
1: look we- <laughs> Uh, it would, well, two things probably. I would, tr- sometimes when I struggle to get to sleep, I uh, I think of this plot that I've been working on now for several years and I add another thread to it. And mm-hmm. so I've got two books in the back of the my, my mind, which I keep adding threads to and then realizing that they're not going to work. And the other uh, uh, limitation, of course, that I find is you, to write a book, you need to have done so much research. I mean, you can't just say, mm-hmm. Mr. Policeman, He's got to have a, a, a proper title. You, you've got to know mm. some of the legal aspects. You've got to know some of the medical terms, um, and so the the, <laughs> the the research element and my, my plot holes are not advancing me too much, unfortunately. The the other thing <laughs> on the, the professional level, I've often thought about doing a, a simple financial mathematics as it relates to real estate because I find that there's a a lot of confusion about some of the basics and. Um, I do some of this stuff in the training sessions I run to simplify some of the processes uh, surrounding discounted cash flows and cap rates and all that sort of stuff. Um, Because I think think we get too intimidated by it. And if there was a way uh, to simplify it and make it more palatable, uh, it'd be great. But I haven't done a great deal apart from uh, prepare a few spreadsheets so far.
0: Well, financial mathematics, we would be very happy to work with you on a John Verpoletti financial mathematics module with our learning and development team. So when you have some spare time, please reach out to do that. Um, what do you think is the biggest challenge you're facing in work right now in your region and, and how are you tackling it?
1: I, I worry about, the. you know, I hate to harp back on this thing. I, I reckon we have really diluted the quality of property professionals and that that hurts the profession across this whole region and I see it more and more, and the problem's not being addressed. Uh, I try and make noises about it when I can. Um, I think there are, and I don't mean to be uh, too patronising, but there are too many amateurs playing the big game, and um, I I think a better level of control and regulation is needed in Europe generally, Uh, something that's missing here. So Mm. I'm scared, uh, scared's a strong word, of course, but... Uh, I'm somewhat intimidated by that risk. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm very much in my twilight years, so it's unlikely to impact me. But I do fear for the future of property education if we don't get our uh, and regulation if we don't get our um, hands on the on the on the problem.
0: Mm. And the flow and effects of you know claims against valuers exactly. who really don't should know better or maybe don't know better from what you're saying.
1: Yeah, exactly. And mm. I I. I I think I'm accurate in saying to the best of my knowledge there's only ever been one court case which has challenged a valuation in Central and Eastern Europe since I've been here. Um, And that was only because the client had the foresight to have the contract, the valuation contract governed by UK law. So it it did need to be determined in the UK and and the client won, obviously, because there was a negligent valuation, but, um, you know, that sort of stuff generally is missing from the market. If you don't have consequence for uh, professional misbehaviour, then there's going to be professional misbehaviour. Mm, of course. And we, we're seeing too much of that here. And, it uh, happens. Yeah, it mm. does. So
0: so just in closing, what is one final thought you would like to leave our listeners with?
1: In, in terms of um, property, but I guess we're speaking to a property audience, I've never, ever regretted uh, getting into property and I think it, uh, it has produced for me a very rewarding career and one I highly recommend to others. If uh, if, if to be somewhat patronising uh, to, to younger people, if you have the opportunity to work with a mentor who's prepared to give of his or her time, milk it for all it's worth. I was lucky enough to have a couple uh, who spent time with me and I benefited so much uh from their guidance and their help and uh, some of the little mantras they taught me, uh, which which I held through in, in my profession. I guess the other thing that benefited me, uh, and depends on which direction people want to take their careers in, the more parts of the property industry you can work yourself into, the better off you'll be as a property professional. I qualified as a valuer in 1980. And of course I knew everything then until <laughs> I went and until, I joined Delta's finance in financing in 1985 and realised very quickly I knew nothing. In 1998, we went into uh, development and once again, I realised I knew nothing. Um, And then, of course, I came to Central and Eastern Europe uh, where there were no sales. And I once again realised I knew nothing. So the more parts of the industry you can work within, the better off you'll be as a property professional.
0: So we are... Going back to your point around mentors, um, you know, we are receiving a lot of um, feedback and input from our younger members around mentor programs and harnessing the knowledge that sits within the more, you know, senior members of our profession. And and it's something that we're definitely looking at. So I'm really glad that you um, made the point about mentors because I think they're really important. We've all, you know, those that take the benefit, ask the questions, just asking someone for a coffee, it's rare that someone would say no. Is that what you found?
1: Yeah, um, exactly, exactly. Uh, sometimes there's too much of a belief that, you know, it's a stupid question. Well, it's, there are no such things as stupid questions in my mm-hmm. mind because you will find within an audience somebody else hasn't been brave enough, brave enough to ask the question which they don't know the answer to themselves. And, and the second reason I think it's uh, it's important that people do put their hand up is sometimes you just need that little bit of information by asking what you think is a stupid question, and then the whole picture works for you. And yes. It's just that missing link that you haven't got your head around yet, and when you ask that supposedly stupid question, the answer is delivered, and then it's all there for you. Mm. And um, yeah, that's something. In, in the training I do, I try and reinforce there aren't any stupid questions. I also always had an open-door policy, um, you know, when, when I was uh, working full-time, always, and I al- always promoted training as well to mm. um, to get out the most of, of a system which is basically friendly to you, but you've got to it's work it. Yeah.
0: yeah, that's right. And so for those, you know, listening who are in the earlier years of their career you know, reach out, ask questions, um, you know, test your thoughts and what you've learnt so far, because there's a lot of very willing participants here to support you. Um, And I've certainly seen that almost every event I've been to around the country, to be
1: honest. Yep, agreed.
0: All right, well, thank you so much for your time, John, um, and thank you to our audience for listening to The Voice of Value Today, we shared our time with John Verpaletti, a fellow of the API and one of the longest serving property practitioners in Central and Eastern Europe. Please join us again for future episodes. You can find us on all leading podcast platforms.